Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Persuasion by the big man, Robert Cialdini, a revolutionary way to influence and persuade. He's a papa. He is the godfather of influence and persuasion. His first book, over 30 years ago, Influence, detailed the six things that you put into the content of your message to make it more persuading. And this book, his second book, is all about the context so, what do you do to set up people before you actually deliver the message? Yes, and yes, that's exactly it. So, the things you can do beforehand that aren't really consciously on the top of the mind that you can do. So, there are some examples throughout the book. So, things like why if you play French music as people are wandering through a wine store, they're actually more likely to buy a French wine. And also, if you ask someone for their number in front of a, a florist with flowers everywhere because we associate flowers with the romance, they're more likely to give you their number than you are just a bakery. Mm. And the important thing is that in neither of those cases, do you actually realize what's happening? It's just some subtle things about the context of the message that we don't pick up on, but significantly increase the chances of compliance. Yep. So, the book's littered with takeaways that we can take, um, you know, it's from the abstract and we can take it down to our real life, um, down to our negotiations or things like that. So, we'll try and bring it down to things you can use in everyday life. Yeah, so he says that the best persuaders become persuaders. So they focus on what we present first because what we present first changes the way we experience what we present next. So he says that the highest achievers, whether that's in business or sales or picking up someone of the opposite gender or the same gender, say that they focus on what they do before making their request, not just the request itself. So being a persuader makes you a better persuader. So we'll get into the tactics now, man, and he kicks it off in chapter two with an absolute ripper. Um, so chapter two is called Privilege Moments, not hocus, not pocus, but focus. So he says that we have this thing called the psychological shoot. And so we can make people focus on what we want them to focus on. And he says that one of his examples is a, is a positive test strategy. So if you did a survey on someone, you know, rate how happy you are um, from one to 10. Or if he says, are you unhappy, rate your happiness from 1 to 10. Just by saying that focus first makes people then look for examples of that. So if he says, are you happy, people look for reasons of them being happy. If he says, are you unhappy, they look for reasons for them being unhappy. So they're going to rate themselves lower if he asked if you're unhappy rather than happy. So if you ask like the, it's a single shoot question, he says, so you're really sending them down mentally down the one route to find confirming things that um, are related to the question and... If you're saying, are you happy? They're looking for reasons why they're happy and then they're going to, in their answer, give you something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's what he calls the target shooting or the positive test strategy. Another example of using something like this, he says that there was an example, a study where someone in a shopping center had a clipboard, asked people walking past, hey, can you please give me a few minutes to fill out this survey? And 29% of people filled out the survey. Now, what they did to persuade someone to do this survey they asked a persuasive question first. They said, hey, do you consider yourself a helpful person? And once they'd persuaded them with that, almost everybody says yes. Then the, after that, they said, okay, can you give me a couple of minutes to help me fill out the survey? And he said it went up to 77.3% of people then volunteered to do the survey after they'd persuaded them with this, this positive test strategy, this target shooting of convincing someone that they're, or getting them to say that they're a helpful person. It's very similar to his first book where he talks about... Um, uh, consistency where we always like to be consistent as well so this is using this principle up first as well so you ask them at the very start before you even get into it 
and they don't even know what you've done. Yeah. You sneakily just snuck in there and influenced them by what? You know, 29% to 77%. That's a huge difference. That's worth it. Just by question. a question, they'd have, <laughs> they'd have no idea, mate. So that's, um, that's some evil shit right there for you. <laughs> <laughs> if you. If you're using the right way, it's not so evil. He says, if you wish to change a person's behavior, you must first change some existing feature of that person so that it fits in with the behavior. If you say to someone you're a helpful person, then they're instantly thinking of themselves as a helpful person and they're more likely to help you out rather than if you're just going cold without that persuasive target shooting. Target shooting. Yeah, C-H-U-T-I-N-G, shoot, as in sending someone down a shoot, not shooting them. I reckon it's similar to similar sort of the metaphor here, similar mate. sort of stuff. If, we're, on if different, we're, we're on different pages here in terms of uh, <laughs> manipulation or... Or um, the positive yeah. side of things, but you're Definitely always positive, you're a much more evil person than the average. No, man, I'm just looking at it through how I can help people. You, <laughs> I don't know why you're thinking evil, man. Chapter, <laughs> chapter three is the importance of attention is importance. So that means that whatever we give our attention to in our minds, we think it's more important. So it's sort of similar to in thinking fast and slow. They talked about the availability cascade where if we see something around, we see it as more important. So whether that's, you know, the main example is like the news. If we see something a lot on the news, because we have a lot of attention on it, we think that it's more important than it probably actually is. Absolutely. So if you look at, say, the leading causes of death that is most likely to affect you in your life, terrorism is something that's probably going to be ranked between 200 or 300. It's pretty much going to be non-existent. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to get die from terrorism pretty much. But... You know, up as number one was coronary heart disease. But because coronary heart disease isn't littered on the front page of the newspaper all the time and the news bulletins and everything, you don't give it much importance, even though it's completely irrational not to give that importance because that's your biggest risk in life. And terrorism is about to zero. But because of this availability cascade and it's occupying territory in our minds for a certain amount of time, we start thinking that that is so important and that's going to be risky for our lives. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, and he won the 2002 Nobel Prize. People ask him, you know, what's the most important thing you've ever learned or you know, what's the biggest recommendation you give people? And you'd think it might be something that he won the Nobel Prize for, which was this prospect theory or loss aversion that we overweight losses rather than gains. But he said that the most important thing people need to know, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. So he's saying that there's this basic human inclination to assign this overweighted, you know, undue importance to something that happens to be salient at the time. So whatever we're thinking about seems really important at the time when we're thinking about it, but really it's probably not. So whatever you're thinking about, irrationally just understand that it's not as important as you think as yeah. a general rule. Yeah, exactly. Which is very, very tough to, to realize. It's, yeah, it's something that's built into us. Um, but it's something we've got to realize. He calls it the focusing illusion. So whatever we're focused on, we think it's important, but really it's it's an illusion. It's not that important. So C.L. Dini is a researcher here, and he kind of proved it here with, say, the 9-11 um, news coverage. Just before the 10-year anniversary, they asked people, you know, what is, what's the most important thing that's happened in the last 100 years? And 30% of people said it was 9-11. So that was in um, August of 2011. So then in September of 2011, when there was two or three weeks of stories, you know, the 10-year anniversary of September 11, this is what happened. And there were a hell of a lot of news stories about it. They redid the survey and it went up to 65% of people said 9-11 is the biggest event of the last 100 years. And then a month later, after all the stories had gone away, it went back down to 30% of people that said 9-11 was the biggest event. 
Yes. So back to every day, he says, um, where it relates to say, maybe in the context of negotiation, he says, the persuader who artfully draws outsized attention to the most favorable feature of an offer becomes a sex- successful persuader. So if you're negotiating or if you're arguing or anything, put all the attention and the focus on your arguments and then you're naturally going to be more likely to win, even if it's inferior to what the other person's thinking about. So if you're negotiating with your boss and you know there's this one certain thing you did that is the most likely to get you the pay rise, in the conversation, make sure as much as that area of the conversation is drawn out as possible because the boss in the brain, because it's um, at the front of the brain, he's going to see, he's going to put more importance on this aspect. Exactly. You might have five things and you want to say all five because they're all really good, but that will be the, the wrong way to go about it. It's better to just focus on one thing that's the main benefit. You know, whatever's most favorable, focus on that and don't worry so much about the other four that are not the most favorable. And you still might disarm him with some of the negative things you've done just as an honesty, but um, yeah, just in terms of duration, have it on the, the thing you want to point him in the direction that you want. Yeah, Matt, that's part of the persuasion as well is throw a negative in there, but we'll get back to that. I've got this in bold, back rows to attention. There's a, a story here that did a little test on an online furniture store. So it was a furniture store and they did like a bit of a split test where 50% of people saw a website that had fluffy clouds in the background and 50% of people saw a website with pennies in the background, so coins in the background. And what they found was that the people who saw the clouds on the background without consciously realizing that there were clouds in the background, they looked for comfort-related things and they were looking for the most comfortable furniture and ended up purchasing the most comfortable furniture. And the people who saw the money in the background were searching for the cheapest and they were very price sensitive. So the thing was you they didn't realize it. So afterwards they said, oh, did you buy the cheapest thing because you saw the pennies in the background or did you buy the most comfortable chair because you saw the clouds in the background? They said, no, what are you talking about? I'm not that, not that stupid to fall for something like that. But they realized that it actually did have a massive impact even though people were never really consciously aware of it. So by managing that background of you know that's obviously a physical background but the the background that we were talking about in terms of the frame of the conversation you can then guide people towards what you want them to be focusing on so you might think the background which you're not really consciously focusing on doesn't have a big impact but not just in websites in everyday life it does have a huge impact in your work and everything so if you're working and you've got all this background noise like traffic planes and music and everything you might not think it's affecting your work but all this background stuff, unconsciously, it is really changing uh, the way you're approaching things as well. And you could probably, um, I think he touches on this later in the book as well. It's like kind of setting up your geography and the things around you as well uh, just to influence you in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. You might think that the traffic in the background doesn't impact on you, but it actually does. You think you tune it out, but you actually don't. The next chapter was what's focal is causal. So as you said, chapter three was, you know, whenever we have attention we assign increased importance to it now the next thing he says is whatever we're focusing on not only do we assign more importance to it we also assign causality to it so whatever we're thinking about we're thinking that's the cause of something as well there was a study here about people cutting in line so people asked you know if i offer you a certain amount of money will you let me go in front of you in the line so at first people were offered a dollar and then 50% of people let them in front of them. Later, he offered $3, and then all of a sudden, it was up to 65%. And then when they offered $5, it was 75%, said, yes, you can go in front. 
And then when they offered $10, 76% of people could go in front, they said. Now, the reason being here is what he calls the norm of social responsibility. So, he says that we should aid those um, who need assistance from us in proportion to their need of assistance. So, the amount of increased money there was a bit of a proxy for, you know, how much does this person need to cut in front of me? And so, you'd think that, okay, if someone gives me $10, I'll give them my spot in line. But what he said that almost nobody took the money. If someone offered, I'll give you 10 bucks to cut in front, they said, sure, you can cut in front, but they didn't actually take the $10. So, the reason being here is that, that we thought that because they offered more money, they must be in more need. And so, we're thinking now this causality, because our focus is on this need, that this person needs to cut in front, that's the cause for us letting them cut in line. Fantastic, man. And another study he's got here, which kind of demonstrates the importance of causality is a a study of a con- uh, there was a conversation between a man and a woman and the conversation was objectively quite evenly weighted between the two but what they did is they had someone eavesdrop on the conversation and when the person was behind say the female looking at the male so in their point of view the male was in front of you and they couldn't see the face of the female they thought the conversation was dominated by the male and then also vice versa so, when your eavesdropper was standing behind the male, looking at the female speak, even though the conversation was subjectively weighted, all of a sudden, there was a bias to believe that the conversation was dominated by the female. Yeah. So, this was a, a study that was set up in a way that the script was perfectly neutral. No one was more dominant than the other. But because our focus was on either the female or the male, depending on our perspective, we assign, assigned causality to that person. So, whoever we were focused on, we thought, oh, this person's the person dominating the conversation. Mm. So, one thing you can do, <laughs> this kind of popped in my head, so I don't know how relevant it gets when it <laughs> just pops go. in. <laughs> but, um, you know, say things are going really good at your work or something like that and a project's a huge success and jump in here if you disagree with me, mate. <laughs> we'll see what um, it does. Perhaps speak up at the meetings mm. a lot when things are going well and then you'll be assigned causality for the good results. And when things aren't going so well, either take a sickie <laughs> at the day of the meeting or just shut up and be quiet and sit in the back corner. No, Matt, I like where that's going. I like where that's going. He says that, you know, this whatever's focal is presumed causal effect. It, it comes into like leaders as well and that whenever there's a the CEO of the company tends to be assign more cause for either the good or the bad that happens or the captain or the coach of the sports team because they're the leader, because they're the focus, they get the cause. Even though they're one person out of a large organization, um, because they're the main focus, they cop the most cause. Absolutely. And if you just think about it, it's quite irrational, mm. you know, especially in sports, as if the coach has that massive an impact over it, you know, and when there's so many people contributing to success, um, but it's always the coach's ass that is off the line first, gets, gets booted. Mm. Man, I played a game of Survivor last week, just the one day. I made sure I positioned myself at the final jury speech so that I was in the focus. Two people were sitting side on. Mm. I moved my seat to make sure I was focused um, front on and uh, I, was, I won. Yeah. And <laughs> I was gonna you won, anyway, but, just, but a, yeah. just a bit more context for the listeners. It's not like you went on the real Survivor. A whole bunch of geeks go to a park on a, <laughs> on a Saturday and they play make-believe Survivor yeah. <laughs> and then, um, then, you, then you beat... Beat a whole bunch of people there. Yeah. Oh, mate, Sorry, mate, I had to throw that in. I use I used a lot of uh, persuasion in order to win as well, so it's a fucking good book. Yeah. <laughs> good on you, mate. <laughs> Chapter five, Commanders of Attention. So, you know, we're getting more into the tactics here. Yeah. More into the sexual stuff. <laughs> this is what you like, mate. 
Oh, we all like. Oh yeah, we all like it. A bit of sex, mate. But you know, you don't want to be using this for too much manipulation. But so part one of this commanders of attention is the attractors. So this is how we can attract attention to something. There was a study in France where they had people go up to a girl and ask for her number, like a beautiful French woman. And you know, five minutes before, this is where the study was. So they asked the girl, "Hey, do you know where the direction is to uh, Martin Street?" That was one half of the group. And then the other half asked, hey, do you know what the directions are for Valentine Street? And it turned out five minutes later, if someone went up and asked for a number, after she was persuaded about Valentine Street, they were more likely to get her number, which is completely irrational when you think about it. It really is. But just because we were persuaded, obviously, once she heard the word Valentine Street, she was thinking Valentine's Day, she was thinking love. And then this uh, stranger comes up for a nice, friendly conversation and she's already pre-suaded into giving the number over. So that's a commander of attention. So anything sexual is a huge commander of attention. And, you know, that's completely unconscious. It's not conscious. And, you know, if you asked her, uh, you know, what are the influences of you giving the number? There's no way she would have said anything about this person five minutes ago asking about Valentine's Street. It kind of yeah, just stuck in the brain. Yeah, she would have never realized. Yeah, no, 100%. So... That was sexual. The second one is threatening, which is kind of obvious. So, you know, we'll always evolve to have sex. And the other thing was to, um, you know, the fight, fight or flight response. And what he says here was after September 11, when the commercial airliners blew up the towers in 2001, I think it was, you know, obviously a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world decided not to fly. They, didn't, they were very fearful of planes and perhaps irrationally so here. So what they did, what they opted for instead was driving to their destination. So that huge increase in driving actually led to about 1,600 additional American deaths just because there is actually a much higher percentage of you dying in a car accident than you are in a commercial airliner. Um, you know, people rationally chose that. And then those 1,600 deaths definitely didn't get reported on. Yeah, exactly. No, very true, mate. So there were a couple of attractors, sexual and threatening. And the third attractor he talks about is change. So change is something that really grabs our attention persuasively. So the story behind this is Pavlov's, Pavlov's dogs, the classical conditioning experiment. So the, the story was that Pavlov had a bunch of dogs and what he did was whenever he gave them food, he rung a bell. And so then he started to ring a bell before he gave them food and then the, the dog salivated to in the expectation of food. And eventually, he was able to ring the bell. They'd salivate because they're expecting food. So, the bell caused them to salivate because he'd linked it with receiving food. Now, Pavlov was like, sick, this is an awesome finding in terms of classical conditioning. I want to show some people. But whenever he brought someone new into the room or whenever he took the dogs into a different room, his method didn't work. He'd ring the bell and nothing would happen. Now, the reason was because there was so much change. So, like any animal, we're wired to constantly be surveying our surroundings subconsciously looking for change because change could be dangerous. So, whenever change comes in, the dogs forgot about the bell, forgot about the food, and they were just looking at the change. And he calls it the investigatory reflex. So, a bit of a human example here is that if we ever think we're sitting at the table, we think, oh, I've got to go uh, walk in uh, to the kitchen and clean dishes i don't know that was a shit example that's a really shit example but fuck come on and mate you can do better small. if you uh gotta go and uh put a date on the calendar that you've got coming up something small like that the dish is a bit too large example and you think okay so you get up you walk into the kitchen 
And then you get to the kitchen and you think, why did I come into the kitchen for? What did I have to do? Mm. So you forget. And he says that, you know, walking through this doorway, you've walked into a new environment and that change made you forget what you were focusing on because of all the change around you that you were thinking. And it's not until you go back to your desk that you realize, oh, shit, I had to go write that date on the calendar. Mate, I always lose my keys. So I walk in the door mm-hmm. and then I'll obviously put my keys somewhere and three minutes later, I'm like, where, where the fuck are my keys? Yeah. Is this, can you help me there? Yeah, there's too much change going on, mate. You've gone into a different I've just room. walked through the door, man. Surely I can cope <laughs> with that. Mate, you've got a pretty awful memory. <laughs> it, I do. Just generally. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, he's saying that the, you know, whenever there's too much change going on around us, it commands our attention. So we lose attention from the things that we're actually focusing on whenever there's change. So things that attract our attention are sexual, threatening, and change. Now, the second part of this commanders of attention is magnetizers. So he says that once something has attracted our attention, there's a couple of things that magnetize the intensity of this attention. He says, besides the persuasive advantages of drawing attention to a particular stimulus, there is considerable benefit to holding it there. One of the things is self-relevant information. So he talks about like some ad copy, you know, after all these years, people accept that antiperspirants aren't going to change. They might even get uh, accept the ugly stains on their clothes from hard work, but they don't have to anymore. So the issue with this ad copy is he says that, you know, people might accept this, you know, they might accept this, they don't have a choice. But things like externalizing words like people and they don't have any self-relevance. He says if you change it to you, you know, if you get stains on your clothes, if you don't have to deal with this anymore, because it becomes self-relevant, then it's going to hold our attention much more than some externalizing words. Yes. Unfortunately, people really, really only care about themselves yeah. in a lot of cases. <laughs> and it's, um, it's one of those themes that comes up in a lot of books. The second one is the mysterious. He says, the descriptions require notice, questions require answers, and mysteri- mysteries require explanations. So, if something is a mystery, searching for the explanation makes it far more memorable and requires far more focus, energy, effort, and things like that, rather than just simply giving them the answer. So, you know, if you're doing any kind of marketing or something, beginning with a mystery and they're just sitting there going, oh, oh, fuck, oh shit, what's going on? Where's he going with this one? <laughs> you know, they're going to be starting in their brain, search for the answers themselves. So, when they, when they finally get that answer, it kind of lodges in the brain much more effectively. Yeah, definitely. Mysteries are a great way of magnetizing that attention. Another way is, he says, the unfinished, and he calls it the Ziaganic effect. I don't know how I went with that pronunciation, but the example is like uh, waiters. There's a large group of people at a restaurant. So there's 20 people at the table. They all order, and this uh, the waiter doesn't write anything down. He memorizes them all perfectly, and then 20 minutes later when the food comes out, he brings the 20 items out and puts them perfectly in order of people exactly where they were, 100% correct. Three minutes later, they tested him. They brought pe- People brought him back, covered their plates. He said who ordered what and he had absolutely no idea. So, you know, the basic expl- expl- explanation might be that, you know, three minutes longer made him forget, but that's definitely not it. The real reason is that in his mind, previously the task was unfinished. So, he was holding that attention in his mind. Once he'd given the last person their last meal, it went to finished and he just switched off. He didn't have to remember it anymore. There was no point in remembering it. So his focus, his attention went elsewhere. Yes. So unfinished tasks are much more memorable, hoarding attention. So um, they can be performed and dispatched carefully. If anything's unfinished, it's going to definitely hold more attention in your mind. Mm-hmm. And so one example is a British novelist, Somerset Morham. She never finishes a 
writing session at the end of a sentence or the end of a paragraph or the end of the page, she always will stop her session mid-sentence. And the reason being that, you know, she's leaving it unfinished. So it means subconsciously she's always thinking about it. And then when she comes back the next day to continue writing, she can start where she left off rather than procrastinating because it was a finished task. Now it's an unfinished task. There's easily something that she can go on to next. All right, so there are a lot of the the, the tactics. I really like um, here in chapter 10, he kind of really relates his other book, Influence, which is an absolute weapon of a machine, and his new book, uh, Persuasion. So, And he ties it all together with um, the three different stages to actually getting someone across the line and fully persuaded. And the first stage of this this three-step method is involves cultivating a positive association. So he says people are more favorable to a communication if they are favorable to the communicator or they're more open to the message when they are more open to the messenger. So things that do this are two of his principles from influence, which are reciprocity or reciprocation and liking. Mate, can we try and tie this in maybe to a real world example? Like say, you, you know, you, you want to get a pay rise from your boss or something. So this is the goal and we'll try and go through through this three-step process on the fly. Like We're on the fly, mate. That's a real risk, uh, but we'll see how we go. So what we need to do is cultivate a positive association and the way you can do that tying in uh, the strategies from his first book is reciprocation and liking. So reciprocation, if you remember, people say yes to those they owe. So not not always, of course, but... Often enough that behavioral scientists have labeled this a tendency, a rule of reciprocation. So it's basically that thing. If you buy someone a beer at a bar, you have this unconscious obligation that, oh, I've got to buy this other person a beer. Like a boss or something, if you give them a gift maybe a few weeks beforehand, or it might just be simply doing an amazing job. I think I think that's a better example is you got to give first in order to receive and giving first could be doing a really good job on a specific project. I think that's a better example than And then they feel they need to reciprocate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, need, they feel they need to reciprocate. <laughs> I thought you said I was the evil one, mate. You're just trying to give someone a <laughs> gift to get a 10K pay rise off a $10 box of chocolates. That's true. And then B, the other one is liking here. So just it's just quite self-explanatory in this scenario. Yeah, liking from influence, you know, people, we like people who are like us. So, if there's similarities, um, so we like people who are similar to us, but we also like people who like us. So, if you give someone compliments, then they're going to realize that this person likes me and then they're going to like you more in return. So, that's the first stage is cultivating a positive association. The second stage is reducing uncertainty and making that become a priority. Yeah. So, after we've used reciprocity and liking to get that positive association, the next thing we need is to reduce uncertainty and to do that, we bring in two more of the six things from influence, which is social proof and authority. So, social proof being that other people have trusted you, so then it reduces that person's cognitive load to immediately assign trust. Yeah. A few common examples of social proof is, you know, if this thing's got 500 five-star reviews or a million people have bought this book. That's all things like social proof to show that you know other people are doing this, people who are similar to you are doing this. So it's less uncertain. It's something that you might enjoy as well. Social proof in the context of the pay rise here, it might be that a lot of the peers have been um, giving very positive feedback about the work you're doing. So you might point the boss to that direction saying, look, you know, all the other directors or whatever are saying I've been fantastic and this is what maybe the customers have been saying about the work I've been doing. Yeah, nice. The next one is authority and he talks a lot in influence about authority that, you know, we 
trust people in lab coats more or we trust people wearing suits more or or things like that you know someone who's credible they seem to possess you know this bit of expertise and a bit of trustworthiness so again if someone comes with authority that reduces the uncertainty yeah so that's number two which is reducing uncertainty the third thing we need to do is motivate action yeah so we've come this far we've we've got ourselves to be you know likable we've created this positive association the next thing we've done is we've reduced the uncertainty but still nothing happens until we motivate action and the two things from influence here are scarcity and commitment and consistency as we know scarcity creates value so quite naturally if we know something scarce you know if you're on um you know uh, booking a hotel online it says only one left or something yeah. they're using the tactic of scarcity because we know yeah. as soon as we think there's oh there's not many left then we assign higher value to yeah. it we want more of what we can have less of and it could be scarcity in terms of numbers as you say oh, you know there's only one room left or limited edition only 100 100 copies of this book or it could be scarcity in terms of time oh this is a special deal that ends in three days time Make it more scarce. In the context of pay rise here, you might say, you know, I'm the only person who can do what I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm scarce. Yeah, exactly. Or the other scarcity could be, I've got a job offer from this other place. Yes. I mean, there's a exactly. time time limit on them, you know, upping the offer. Absolutely. And the other one is consistency. Yeah. So, if you can get someone to make a small commitment first, uh, they're more likely to then be more consistent in their action. Like, he calls it like the foot in the door. If you can get someone to do something very small first they're more likely to do something bigger. So in this case, you might have had a conversation six months ago where you've set up to the boss, you know, if I do A, B and C really well, then I'll get a pay rise. And so he's made that commitment, you know, six months down the track now that you're asking for the pay rise, as long as you've done A, B and C, they should be consistent. So you might want to sit down with your boss and and go through some goals, what you want to achieve over the next six months. If you knock them off and then you're in a better position because the boss is going to um, keep their word or feel like they have to keep their word yeah mate i reckon uh surprisingly we did okay in that example i was very worried when you threw that one <laughs> out of left field <laughs> unplanned but it yeah. was not too bad well i think it's important that uh, a lot of books sometimes uh you know you can be in the real abstract and mm. you need to really find a way to bring it down to earth yeah well. all these academic studies that is used to tie into this book you know there is the the idea and the the rules behind it but i, I agree that there needs to be some real world application involved as well and one important thing that he touches on toward the end of the book before we completely wrap it up is this idea of ethics. And we're going to be speaking to the big Rob Saldini. Mm, the Godfather. The Godfather. So we'll ask him this as well. But he says you can't just pull these theories out of nowhere. It's kind of like if it's inherently got these attributes of persuasion or uh, influence, then kind of point to it. So if it's genuinely scarce, then mm. make sure you have that in your marketing campaign if you're genu- genuinely an authority, um, make sure you wear a suit and then you show that you're an authority. If you're yeah. not an authority, don't just wear a suit and act like a big gun when you're not. Yeah, exactly. It's a very short... You can sort of use these as a way to manipulate people if you take his six things for influence or pre-suade people, but it's an extremely, extremely short-term thing. It's a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. Once someone sees through that and realizes you're a hoax, you can never get that uh, reputation back. So you can't just unethically manipulate people with this sort of stuff unless it's a very very short-term thing if you want a a long-term much longer-term satisfaction and real benefits it has to be genuine 100 and that comes a lot up a lot in in all kinds of books right it's counterproductive Mm. if you use these inauthentic so this idea of authenticity is of utmost importance exactly man all up i reckon it's a great book 
I reckon it's an important read. Hey, everyone. If there's ever a book that you like when we're reviewing it, um, if you're going to go and buy it, there's a link we actually have in the show notes every time. It goes to the Book Depository and Book Depository that's free shipping and all that. And it's probably the cheapest out of everything. But we get a 5% little cut. So if you're going to buy the book anyway, um, we'd really appreciate it if you go through that link to buy the book.